Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kauli. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kauli, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of speaking uh, with Chris Benson. Uh, Chris Benson is with Reliant uh, Real Estate Management, uh, a major player uh, in self-storage uh, space. Uh, their company is a top 25 uh, into commercial self-storage operators uh, in the US. And Chris Benson uh, is the chief investment officer, and he is in, responsible for all the uh, equity debt and all the financial uh, uh, sides of the transactions within their uh, business. Their company has uh, completed over $650 million uh, worth of self-storage acquisitions and dispositions within the last five years. Uh, they recently completed a, a fund called Reliant Self-Storage Fund 1, a $50 million uh, equity fund uh, that was addressed uh, for this self-storage acquisitions. And Chris is a central player uh, within their investment committee and a lot of knowledge, a lot of due diligence uh, goes through his desk. And it's a tremendous pleasure to welcome him. Uh, and I'm looking forward uh, to this conversation. Uh, thank you for taking time, Chris, today. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sakar. I hope it's. Uh, I hope it's a, your introduction was too kind. I hope I, I live up to it. <laughs> good, good, awesome. And, and you know, as we spoke before, Chris, that uh, we have worked in the past, uh, you know, on different investment opportunities and things like that. So, your company, your name uh, is a household familiar name for sure. Uh, for listeners, uh, help us with our background, uh, Chris, as to uh, you know uh, how you came about into the industry and uh, with Reliant uh, in general. Yeah. Um, so my background's a little bit unique in that um, my I came from a corporate sales environment. Um, <laughs> the uh, the last corporate job I held was with Intuitive Surgical, the manufacturers of the Da Vinci robot. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what got me into real estate uh, is probably not too dissimilar than what a lot of people have experienced, um, where you're trying to create some facet of passive income. Sure. And so mm-hmm. um, I distinctly remember I've, I've told this story before, but I, I distinctly remember waking up just before I turned 30 and said, I can't do this for another 30 years. Like this, this is not what I'm going to do. Um, you know, I, I was it, it, fantastic company. I, I'm making pretty good money and enjoying myself, but uh, you know, my work-life balance was, was rough. So um, I'm a big believer that you got to enjoy the journey as much as the destination. And if you're not enjoying the journey, you got to do something different. So, you know, from, from my perspective, I started, um, I think not too dissimilar than you did. I started uh, buying some duplexes in my local market mm-hmm. um, and uh, very quickly uh, realized that that was not scalable for me. I hated it. <laughs> I hated it almost more than, the, than work. Um, primarily what I didn't like is the people aspect of it. Um, mm-hmm. 
just seemed like we were always dealing with people issues um, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, we, we had worked out kind of the real estate issues, you know, management, sure. buying electrician, fixing toilets, that kind of stuff. But sure. um, the people issues just, it just beat me up. So um, with that, we, um, we ended up selling that portfolio and, and I heard a, I, I, it's a podcast or a book or I read it somewhere basically that big deals and small deals are the same amount of work. Mm -hmm. just make less money on small deals. Mm -hmm. And so I said, oh, let's, let's see if we can scale into multifamily. Um, and so my first commercial multifamily project was a 64-unit apartment ground-up complex um, that I did with a partner uh, who was a construction guy, uh, owned a construction company. And um, he, I went to church with his family growing up. I hadn't talked to him in probably 15 years and called him one day and said, Hey, I want to get into uh, commercial uh, real estate. I'd like to build some apartments. What do you got? Mm -hmm. And that led to a, a pretty big discussion. And, and a long, long story short, that was kind of my foray into commercial real estate. Interesting. When I, saw, mm -hmm. when I saw that Sakar, that's kind of when the light bulbs went off. I said, um, you know, this is this is how you can build this at scale, um, not deal with you know people on a daily basis. Um, and, uh, and create some, some true wealth and, and income. So um, that's what got me started. And, and uh, we, we did some commercial multifamily, uh, did some passive investing commercial multifamily um, around the country. And then about, uh, I guess it's three and a half, four years ago now, um, as cap rates have compressed in multifamily, um, I started looking at other asset classes and that's mm -hmm. what brought me to self-storage. Um, First as a passive investor, I was an investor at Reliant first, and then um, came in as the uh, the CIO, as you mentioned in the intro, about two years ago, um, and then helping uh, build the uh, the equity raising platform they have. So I know that was a lot of talking all at once, but that's generally how I got to where I am. Interesting, interesting that you realized regarding scale long time ago. Was that uh, your partner in, in the sixty four units, Chris, who? Uh, introduced you to this uh, concept of syndications and partnerships that you can come in and uh, do it. How, how did that come about? <laughs> That's a great story as well. The answer is no. It, it had nothing to do with the, the uh, my construction partner. I'll give him a quick shout out. The, the name of the company is Buck Construction. Um, he's in central New York. But um, what ended up happening is a, 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 a childhood friend who lived in South Boston at the time, and this was it must have been 10 years ago now. Um, but in any event, uh, he got laid off from his job. He was in the financial services industry and got mm -hmm. laid off. And I said, what are you going to do? And he said, you know, I think I'm going to, um, to flip these grow houses in Boston. And mm -hmm. I said, how are you going to do that? And he said, well, first I got to raise 900 grand. And I was like, <laughs> how? How are you going to do that? And he introduced me to the idea of syndication. Interesting. I didn't even understand that it exists. I mean, I knew inherently there were JV partnerships to be had, sure. um, but certainly didn't understand the idea of, of what a syndication was um, and, and how that platform works. So that was the introduction where I kind of said, uh, I, I get it now. Like, that's how we're going to be able to do something at scale with this. Sure, sure. And, 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 you know, for lack of a better term, it's, it's almost a partnership of sorts, right? Where, you know, you have the passive investor sides who are investing. So there's some technicalities to syndications, but uh, for at a very uh, sort of a basic conceptual level, it's, it's pretty much a partnership between just the 
passive investors and the active, uh, uh, you know, investors or sponsors, as we call it, right? So now, uh, Chris, uh, moving on to the reliant or perhaps the uh, self-storage aspect of it, right? Uh, why did you uh, maybe hone in on self-storage? Like uh, uh, you initially indicated that, yes, you had some experience about, uh, let's say, the developing your 64 unit. And I think it sounds like you tried purchasing multi uh, multifamily apartments as well. Uh, mm -hmm. how, how did that shift come about? Um, as I mentioned, like what I saw in the market was cap rates compressing. Um, mm -hmm. And so as that got more and more competitive, I wanted to see if there were other asset classes where, you know, there was more of a runway, I guess. I, I'm mm -hmm. a believer that everything's cyclical, right? So sure. mm -hmm. capital is going to find yield. And so, you know, if, if you can't find it in multifamily, it's going to move to industrial. If you can't find it in industrial, you know, we're going to go to mobile home parks or whatever sure. the case may be. And right. so, you know, I think, for, for me, um, I'm a data guy and, and I just started chugging through some data. Um, first, looking at historical returns, that's kind of how I started, was I, I like the National Association of REIT data because um, mm -hmm. it gives you a good um, broad-based view on sure. all asset classes and their subspecialties. So you can, you know, if there was a REIT for it, timber, agriculture, you can see the publicly traded data on that. And, and the data set's 20 plus years old. So you can see some pretty good historical trends. Storage in the last 25 years did just under 17% a year, which is mm -hmm. amazing. Sure, uh, absolutely. It outperformed mm -hmm. the, the major four, right? Apartments, retail, office, industrial. And so when I saw that, I, I thought, well, that's really interesting. And, you know, the second piece of it that I looked at was, well, what happened in the last recession, right? So I'm also a believer that almost everything is going to happen again maybe not this pandemic although i guess if we look back to 1918 we, we would have seen this thing coming <laughs> but um you know looking back at the 2007 8 and 9 great recession um the data there suggested that self-storage performed very well um, it lost less than four percent of its value mm -hmm. and even compared to apartments that number was closer to seven you know retail office double digits obviously the s p 500 was down more than 20% over those three year periods. So, you know, you have this asset class that one performed very well historically, and then in the last downturn also did well. And, and just fast forwarding a little bit, Sikar, um, we're seeing that same trend today. Uh, we're recording this in the middle of June. Sure. Um, so mm -hmm. we're still seeing how, you know, COVID-19 is going to affect us. But, um, you know, what I would say is so far, the asset class have, has fared pretty well. So, you know, the, the third reason that I really found love with storage was um, that, that the market is very fragmented. So right. You have five publicly traded REITs that, that your listeners probably all know. You know, sure. the, the public storage, extra space, life storage, you know, those, those companies. Um, they own about 25% of the market. And then the rest is um, spread all over the board. You know, there's sure. mm -hmm. a significant number of mom and pop operators. Right. Um, you know, people own one or two facilities. And so with that, there is a consolidation play, you know, a roll-up strategy to be had um, for your listeners who maybe come from private equity background, you know, the ability to take the sum of the whole is worth much more than the sum of the individual parts. Sure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was really those three reasons, the, the, the historical performance, how it did in the last recession and, and the upside, the runway for it that I think brought me to the asset class. 
interesting thank you thank you i mean that that uh, actually uh, clarifies a lot and probably answers some of my follow up questions as well now uh, chris you mentioned that uh, you know there's a historical uh, sort of uh, background to this i mean you see the runway and things like that right now coming to the nitty gritty of the business itself right you mentioned the uh, sort of the whole self storage market in general is pretty fragmented right so mm-hmm. how do you uh, uh, like identify the opportunities like what what sort of goes into your uh, the research uh, side of things to you know kind of uh, start uh, you know delving into a market and uh, uh, like looking at some of these opportunities well, I mean, I don't think we, we look at probably the same metrics that um, all real estate investors do as far as looking at a particular market, right? Mm-hmm. So the same things that might be important for a multifamily investor, population growth, job growth, income, um, average income, mm-hmm. those kinds of things certainly matter at the macro scale. Sure. Um, what's interesting about self-storage is that what really matters is the one, three, and five-mile radius around your facility. Sure. Just think about it, it's a car, right? You're not going to travel for self-storage. We're selling a garage, right? I mean, right. Mm-hmm. An air-conditioned or heated garage. And so, right. you know, it's got to be either convenient to home or work. Sure. And if it's not, you know, there's not an amenity. You know, we don't have granite countertops in our self-storage facility <laughs> that you're going to go rent. So, sure. you know, really it's about that one, three, five-mile radius and truly understanding um, the comps in that market specifically mm-hmm. the supply side, you know, mm-hmm. what other facilities are there and who your competitive set is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, also understanding the dynamics in that one, three and five mile radius, mm-hmm. you know, because you can be in a radius, but not in traffic flow, right? Interesting. You know, traffic mm-hmm. count is a biggest part of what we do. And if, if people aren't driving by your site, mm-hmm. then they're not going to rent there. Um, right. So, that, that's, I think, some of the things we look at and our acquisitions team has really dug into the minutia of understanding the one, three, and five to the mm-hmm. point when we get a property under contract, one of the first things we do is geomap. So we get a list of all the addresses of the tenants and then geomap where they are. So mm-hmm. we can look at it in the one, three, and five mile ring and mm-hmm. understand what geographical barriers what things are influencing people to come to the site Mm -hmm. because it also helps you understand from a risk of new development coming to your market Mm -hmm. you know generally where new development's going to come and you can Mm -hmm. see like okay if a new site opens here are Mm -hmm. we going to be impacted because all our tenants come from here you know Mm -hmm. it's just about really understanding that that one three five mile ring i see now uh uh, related question there, Chris. Like, let's say a 200 uh, storage pads, uh, um, you know, a deal comes uh, around, right? But mm-hmm. it's not on the main thoroughfare or on the, sort of the main uh, street that's there. Maybe it's on one of the like two blocks away or on a side street or things like that, right? Uh, is there anything that you consider something like that? It sounds like you stated that the traffic counts and the main visibility is extremely important. Uh, so I assume I, that sort of translates into, uh, you know, sort of organic marketing and things like that, right? So let's say if a uh, asset comes around, that's probably a few blocks away or on a side street uh, and mm-hmm. things like that. 
So uh, does that mean that that won't be a good candidate? Uh, I mean, just curious. Not necessarily. I, I, there's not one metric that has to be perfect. I mm -hmm. mean, certainly the supply is a big indicator sure. know, of, of what other facilities are in the market. Mm -hmm. um, but, but how I like to think about our underwriting process, and we have two guys on the Reliant team that, that do all the underwriting. Um, and, you know, we're trying to improve that model all the time. Sure. Um, but how I like to think about the underwriting is it's a story, right? We, we try to understand the story of that particular market. Mm -hmm. and, and so one metric may not tell that story, right? Sure. Um, mm -hmm. And you may miss opportunities if it's just, hey, I have to have 25,000 cars a day or I'm not going to look at the property. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. You, you know, some people may invest that way, but, but you're going to miss some opportunities for sure. So I think for us, it's, it's a... Um, it's a piece of the story and mm -hmm. but not necessarily the whole thing so if we come across property that may not be on the major thoroughfare mm -hmm. but there are some other advantages to where it is mm -hmm. um we'll, we'll take that into account and sakar what i would say is the the feet on the ground piece is is the critical part of this you know understanding the market specifically mm -hmm. um i think that's that's a critical part to um how our underwriting process works i see now uh, chris moving on uh as company as large uh, as your company is today, um, are you always looking to acquire a minimum number of units so that you can uh, get some scale in a particular uh, sort of uh, city or a sub-market? What goes into your mind, let's say if you were to enter into, let's say, uh, Tennessee or Alabama today, for example, right? I'm just you know throwing out there, right? But are you maybe always um, uh, targeting that, okay, we want to have uh, like a thousand or 1500, 2000 units before it makes sense for your company uh, to go out and uh, go into a sub-market uh, or a state in general? No, not necessarily. Um, we, we, we don't have a specific metric that, you know, uh, creates cost efficiencies, I guess, on our management platform. Mm -hmm. um, we're vertically integrated, so we're managing the properties that we're buying. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, the more properties we have in a smaller geographic area, the more efficient we can be, especially with payroll um, sure. mm -hmm. in, in the management of those sites. Um, but I would say that, you know, how we look at the portfolio is um, one, geographic proximity, and, and secondly, with an eye on the exit. Because if you're going to sell a portfolio of assets, mm -hmm. the group who's buying it, whether that be a REIT or institutional capital, depending on the size, is also going to want to understand that same efficiencies of scale. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we, we sold a 14 property portfolio in March of this year, where if you put tax on a map, mm -hmm. it makes sense, right? You would look at it and say, okay, you know, I, I can manage that swath. And especially mm -hmm. for, you know, uh, the REITs who uh, we've disposed many properties to, mm -hmm. um, it's valuable for them to be able to say, I can plug my platform into that. <laughs> interesting interesting now as we all know chris that uh self-storage as we all say it right i mean it's a closed unit with a, a door there's not much to it right um how do you add uh, efficiencies or perhaps uh, we are all in the game of uh, you know obviously giving outsized returns to investors and things like that so I mean, you know, coming from a multifamily side, 
where we say that, okay, you can increase the rent and decrease uh, expenses and there are lots of amenities uh, and stuff like that. We can all, uh, you know, sort of improve upon there's uh, management efficiencies and things like that. So uh, help us kind of uh, understand how you sort of uh, increase the, uh, whether the efficiency or how do you increase the NOI on in a self-storage facility? Yeah, so our, our sweet spot, Sakar, has really been value-add deals in secondary and tertiary markets across the southeastern United States. That's where we've had the most success. Um, what I would say is there's no cookie-cutter approach to a value-add, right? It, you know, you mentioned the multifamily. Like, we're not going in, putting in hardwood floors, stainless steel appliances, sure. and granite countertops. Sure. Um, you know, the, the business plan is different each in each asset that we look at. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I would say that uh, we, we look at a particular asset and what the opportunity may be to add value. Sometimes mm -hmm. that's expansion, right? So we're taking, you know, uh, a 15,000 square foot self-storage building and we're going to add it to the back of the property, right? And, and mm -hmm. maybe we're adding some climate control in a market where we think it's under or under supply. Mm -hmm. That's a way to grow NOI, right? Because you, mm -hmm. you expand it, you get at least up and your NOI growth um, is growing exponentially. Um, you know, there, there are some other um, ways that we're doing it just from an operational standpoint as well. So mm -hmm. things like ancillary income items, you know, in sure. self storage, there are other ways to make money. Um, you know, things like U-Haul truck rental, tenant insurance, you know, admin and late fees, um, you know, those types of items, which typically are 10%-ish or so of our pro forma's income, mm -hmm. especially when we come across, um, you know, mom and pop operators. There's usually some pretty good upside to be had on that, as mm -hmm. well as sometimes with mom and pop operators, they're just operating at under market rate, right? Not too dissimilar to the multifamily. Sure. They have a property that's been in the family for 30 years. No one's actively watching it. It's just cash flowing. Um, and they may be 10, 20, 30% below what market rates would be. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's, there's sometimes opportunities there. I see. Now, what about some uh, physical improvements? Like, uh, uh, I know you stated that, yes, you can add uh, additional usage. So that's a direct, uh, you know, income uh, increase there. I can understand that. But what if, if you get a, uh, you know, as you stated, like a, a mom and pop operator owning for 30 years, uh, you know, just bare basic uh, running it just on a nice cash flow laid back uh, gentleman, right? Uh, so how you go in, like, are you adding fences or are you doing, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, like new driveways, things like, uh, give us a sense of what goes into it, like really on the ground. Yeah, I mean, we have a, we have a project manager who's going to look at every site and, and understand what deferred maintenance may be there, right? Sure. So the things you mentioned, you know, fences, gates, security, um, the painting, you know, what our office looks like, a retail office. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, a, that's a critical component for us, you know, making sure that when people walk in, it's, you know, it's light, bright, airy, you know, feels good, smells good, um, those kinds of things. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting, self-storage is a business that you have the real estate play, you know, mm -hmm. like you do in multifamily, sure. um, but you also have this operational business on the side, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're selling point of sale systems, you know, locks and boxes, and you have this retail component where the person behind the desk is almost as important as the property, right? Sure. So mm -hmm. if you got somebody behind the desk who, um, you know, is not welcoming, does not provide great customer service, mm -hmm. you're going to lose tenants, right? Because ultimately we're selling a commodity, 
you know, I mean, like you mentioned, it's a box. So, you know, I think for, for, um, you know, the improvements we can make, it's, it's all over the board. Um, sometimes it's driveway. It's really a deferred maintenance piece that we'll look at and say, Mm -hmm. Hey, what do we need to do? I I think how we look at every property is with the lens of how we exit. If we're going to sell this to a REIT, Mm -hmm. what are they going to want it to look like? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, they may change the sign and the colors. Mm -hmm. If we give them an asset that's generally looks and feels like an institutional quality asset, Mm -hmm. you know, that's going to be interesting for them. Right, right. Now, uh, um, again, going back to those uh, physical, uh, you know, sort of uh, aspects, uh, Chris, there, a lot of like, you know, older self-storage properties uh, could be like extremely dilapidated. Now, nowadays, you know, we are getting whether it's like hard, hardcore steel or like a combination of uh, cement and, uh, you know, iron doors and things like that. Uh, Does your company have a standard way of uh, how you want your facilities to look like other than just the color part of it? Can it be like just anything? Uh, I mean, just curious. Um, give me an example when you say how it looks like positioning in the office and uh, no, I guess I can understand the aesthetics of the office and how the interior space and all that. But let's say someone walks outside uh, uh, the office and now we are actually looking at your storage units, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, do they have to be all uh, physically cemented with iron doors or do they have to be like uh, corrugated steel, uh, things oh, like that? Uh, so yeah. so that, that, th- those aspects meaning, you, you know, is there like a brand uh, associated with it? Not, I, I wouldn't say like if you walk down all our facilities, I mean, they're generally the same, but you know, some have brick facades, some have cement, you know, it, it really depends on, there, there's not an ROI on changing the structure of the building sure, sure. generally. Mm-hmm. So um, what we're looking for, you know, as far as major changes like that is flow through the property, mm-hmm. you know, ensuring the drive aisles are wide enough to get a truck down, right? A moving truck. That you sure. can turn around and get back out the other side. Like hmm. those kinds of things um, is where our operations team and our construction management team, when we look at a new property, are going in and saying, "All right, th- you know, this is wonky. You know, we, we can't have this. So we got to, you know, knock this wall out, take these units out, reposition them, whatever the case may be." Hmm. Um, hmm. But but really, Sakara, I would say because there's such a, a spectrum of different types of operators. Sure, you sure. Know, we look at each property opportunistically. Um, hmm. You know, I can give you an example. We, we bought a property in Tennessee last summer that um, there was a building that had enough roof height to mm-hmm. add a mez level of storage inside the building. So <laughs> Interesting. the building already there. We basically are just putting another set of units on top of the units that are already there. Sure. So, you know, we're, we're trying to be opportunistic when we can take those advantages um, but it, it really is property by property specific. You know, we're not going into everyone and saying, here's our box. It fits right, right inside that. Right, right. Good, good. Thank you. Thank you for that detail. Uh, sure. Now, uh, Chris, uh, give us a uh, sort of a reverse example of uh, maybe a deal or some uh, opportunity you have, you may have passed on that just did not fit the uh, sort of the metrics, whether it was the market or the deal itself or, uh, you know, the traffic counts and uh, some things because I always like to ask our guests that, okay, what works? What are the metrics you're looking at? Great. But uh, also like 
a tangible example where, hey, you know what, this did not fit and hence we passed on. I, I'd love to hear, uh, you know, an example of that. I mean, so I, I probably, by the time I see a deal, if it's mm -hmm. gotten to investment committee, then, you know, our acquisitions team has filtered out some of the easy ones. Sure, right? sure. Because mm -hmm. I'm not underwriting every deal. You know, our, our group right now, it's slowed. Um, transaction volume slowed a bit, but, but I would guess that on a daily basis, we're seeing two to four deals come across the desk, and a majority mm -hmm. of those we're not going to go through a full underwriting. Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, there are things like locations that are that, you know, I sent a, a, a poor property portfolio to our director of acquisitions that's in Brooklyn. And, mm -hmm. you know, he's like, hey, this deal has been circulating for the last six months <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and we don't want to be in Brooklyn. I okay. see. Got so, it. So, you know, th there's these high level things that allow us to filter down. Usually sure. that starts with location. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say that many times when we pass on a deal at the investment committee level, it's, it's function of price, um, you know, and, and as cap rates have compressed in storage, just like they have in multifamily, sure, right, sure. more mm -hmm. capital is starting to chase these deals, you know, the pricing starts to get out of whack. Um, and so for us, you know, we need to deliver the ultimate return to the investor. And if it doesn't meet our underwriting standards, um, then we ultimately have to pass. And, you know, it, it's, there's no hard and fast, like we're only going to buy, a, you know, 5% going in cap rate, right? Sure. It's, it's deal by deal specific. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say ultimately, you know, if we our, our investors are expecting kind of that mid teens return, mm -hmm. if we can't get close to that mid teens cash on cash return, you know, we're most likely going to pass um, because that's just essentially what our, our cost of capital is. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really where I think we see the most, you know, we're going to hold the line. We'll put a, our offer in if we love the deal, you know, market, market makes sense. You know, story makes sense. You know, opportunity for maybe a value add makes sense. But if we can't get to the price we need to ultimately have the exit on the back end, mm -hmm. um, then we're going to walk. I see. Now, Chris, uh, coming to your core expertise of, uh, uh, you know, leading the investment group and, uh, you know, raising lots of equity and things like that, right? Um, what, what sort of panorama of investors you see, whether it's the retail investors or is that like large insurance, uh, uh, you know, endowment funds or private equity? Uh, uh, give us a sense of what, what, what sort of that playbook looks like for you. Yeah, I would say that we have primarily three buckets of, of investors. Mm -hmm. um, we have kind of a retail high net worth accredited investor, right? Um, who's, you know, maybe wants to deploy $50,000 into the, uh, the self-storage space. Mm -hmm. um, think doctor, business owner, you know, somebody with a little bit of discretion, uh, uh, some discretionary uh, spend. And sure. they're looking for some diversification away from traditional equities market into mm -hmm. a non-correlated asset class like, like a self-storage. Mm -hmm. um, we have some equity groups who have their own retail investors who are looking to get access to the um, a professional manager in the asset class. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's for sure a piece of it. And then I'd say our third bucket is the institutional capital. So we have a really large family office that's been a great partner of ours for many many years. Um, mm -hmm. Great group of people um, and a lot of trust between the two groups at this point. Um, we've also done a, a fairly large portfolio um, with a, a private REIT, so what you would consider an institutional investor. Um, and, and it's interesting, Sakar, every group kind of has their own 
nuances of itself, right? <laughs> yeah, and so you know, you just need to understand what you're putting in front of people and, and mm -hmm. what's going to make the most sense for each group. I mean, I think um, you know, an institutional investor, depending on how they're investing, right? They they could be investing off their own balance sheet, mm -hmm. like an insurance company, or you know, you could be a like a private REIT where you're investing other people's money, and and that changes how they view the deal, right? Because right. An right. insurance company may not have a horizon, right? They may say, hey, 10 years. Well, right. you know, that institutional capital shop may say, hey, I need to turn my money every three to five. So it changes, right. you know, the structures of what you can put in front of them and still have interest. Um, and certainly there's benefits and disadvantages for us as the operator as well, right? Right, right. Large institutional investor, they can write a big check, but they have more control. Right. And actually, I appreciate the detail you're going into there, Chris, because uh, that's exactly where I, I was going to follow you uh, as well, where, you know, depending on the size of investor and who's investing uh, and what their motivations are, uh, kind of determines, you know, what your exit is and what uh, sort of levers you have. So please go ahead with your thought, actually. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, you just have to know what you know, I guess sales 101, <laughs> understanding what, what your customer wants. And sure. you know, we know that by asking questions. And so, you know, generally it's, it's just um, most people will say, um, and, and how we view it kind of on our end with investors is we never want to sell um, you on what you should do with your money. We'll right. sell reliant, like, hey, here's our story. Here's why we think we're, you know, good opportunity for you. Mm -hmm. But ultimately you as an investor need to know Here's what my goals are for my money. And I think I can deploy it with you and it makes sense. Um, so that, that's kind of how we look at it, Sakara. Right, right. And I guess another piece of all this also, Chris, is that, uh, you know, educating these folks, right? And it's not like, you know, it's a $100, $500 investment, right? I mean, it's a substantial investment for anybody, right? Whether it's discretionary or not, it's a substantial amount of investment. So they have to be convinced and uh, about the asset class as well and understand, mm -hmm. you know, what it means and things like that. Uh, one thing there, Chris, that you mentioned that you have, you know, the uh, private equity groups uh, coming in and also the life insurance money and stuff like that. What goes into those discussions? Let's say if you're taking the money from private equity, right? And you stated that, they would want a uh, exit uh, or sort of roll their uh, funds every three to five years, right? Uh, what how does that change uh, the dyna dynamics on your side? That does that mean that you are presenting them different deals because you want to present them more opportunistic, uh, uh, quick value add and quick exit type of deals? Uh, I'd be curious to know that. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think. The, the the deal structure has a unique, um, uh, I guess, timeline, um, return profile, and you're trying to match that up with the investor you're talking to. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes the car, it's also about your underwriting assumptions. Mm -hmm. you know, most institutional capital shops are going to be a little more comfortable with some aggressive assumptions mm -hmm. where, you know, if we're presenting something to a retail investor, we, we don't need to be aggressive. Um, right. And sometimes they may not be even aware of a lot of some of the underlying assumptions, but if you're going to a lot more uh, sophisticated or institutional type of uh, in investors, as you stated, right, they may pr probably have done some due diligence on, on their own side, I would imagine. 
Yeah, I mean, look, if, if you're managing a couple hundred billion dollars, <laughs> the, the guys who are running your real estate groups are not dumb people. Sure, um, absolutely. Right? So, you know, they're coming in well-educated on the space. Maybe they've invested in it already mm -hmm. um, and they're looking to deploy more capital in the space. Um, sure. Or, you know, potentially it's a new asset class for them, but they've done their homework. And so, you know, many times it's, it's coming up with a comfort level underwriting-wise with the group to say, mm -hmm. look, our, you know, here's our assumption. Is that too aggressive? Is it too conservative? Mm -hmm. How do you need to see it? Because otherwise, Sakar, you're, you're in a much more competitive environment um, when you're pitching to the institutional capital shops, right? Because they have, they're the hottest girl at school. They, they have lots of choices for dates, right? Sure. Huh. And so you don't want to underwrite yourself out of a deal. Um, right. But you also want to find a good partner who has a shared vision. Um, because if you have an equity partner that you just got married to and you're going to be married to them for, let's call it three to seven years. Sure. Mm -hmm. Boy, if you're not aligned on what you're trying to do, you're going to, that, that's an unhappy marriage, you know? Uh, and back to my first comment, uh, you got to enjoy the journey, not just the destination. Sure. Whether or not you make a lot of money at the end, if you're miserable for five years, it's somewhat, somewhat irrelevant. So I think that's a big part of it too. What, what we're trying to do, and we're actually in the midst of that right now, we, we've engaged an investment bank to help us talk with a lot of um, larger scale investors to understand what that market looks like. And a big part of it is not, they all can write the check, right? Mm -hmm. and, and part of it's due, doing due diligence on us, but a big mm -hmm. part of it is understanding what do you want to do? You know, and, and here's what we want to do. And, and does that align? Because if it doesn't, let, let's not talk anymore. You know, like, let's not, let's not set ourselves up to be. Um, sure, that. sure. Right, right. I mean, there are, as we all know, there are multiple, you know, truths to doing lots of things. That doesn't mean that you know, we are right and someone else is wrong. I mean, there, sure. there's multiple truths and multiple ways to be, uh, you know, doing business, that's for sure. Now, uh, Chris, you uh, earlier in the show, you stated that your company is vertically integrated and you manage that as well, you know? Uh, so I wanted to ask you that, um, do you think that uh, managing the self-storage units, uh, you know, from front uh, to back, everything, right? Does that give you a competitive advantage in your opinion? That's a good question. I think in some deals it may. Um, I, I would say more so on the competitive advantage, are you saying in the acquisition side or once we own the assets? Um, actually, I would say more like end-to-end -end because, you know, I always like to say that from start to manage to exit, right? I mean, there's always a delta, uh, different motivations are involved as to why mm -hmm. the management company is getting involved, uh, you know, more so when you have the third-party managers, for example, like we all know that they may be in it for repairs and the fees and all the different things. Uh, things they can layer you, uh, them on, right? So sometimes, you know, having that in-house or the self-management gives you that competitive edge, right? So I, I'm kind of coming in from that perspective that, so when you are taking all these deals and you know that you have seasoned uh, them for, let's say, uh, five to seven years with your in-house management, uh, you probably have lower cost, I would imagine. So does that maybe uh, give you a, uh, you know, a greater NOI and uh, sort of a good story to sell uh, eventually? So that's why I was wondering that, does that give you, like an in-house management gives you that advantage basically? Maybe not so much on the sales side, Sakar, right? Because if, mm -hmm. if we're selling to a, a REIT, for example, they're mm -hmm. going to have their own management platform, right? So they're sure. not, 
they don't care what our expense ratios are um, because they're um, they, they know what their expense to run them are. Mm -hmm. I think it is it is an advantage through you know the acquisitions and management process um, just because you have the the ability to de um, deploy strategy quickly. Sure. And so mm -hmm. if you have something where um, you know if you have something where you're trying to do uh, something in a particular market, whether it's you know rental rate growth or maybe it's a, a focus particularly on tenant insurance. If it's our management team, you know, mm -hmm. we can deploy those strategies quickly. Where if you're relying on a third-party manager, you, you kind of roll it up to the manager, and the manager tries to deploy it out to their people. It's, it's a much mm -hmm. harder process to control. So I think there's definitely some advantages in there, um, and, and you know, things like you know, not everybody likes to do U-Haul because it's kind of a pain. There, there's sure. some mm -hmm. some work that goes along with it. Um, Absolutely. Being able to manage your own platform, there's there's in some of our sites some really strong revenue that comes out of those U-Haul rentals and generally is bringing people who have a need for storage to the site, right? If I'm going to rent a sure. U-Haul truck, there's a pretty good bet that, you know, you may need some, uh, some storage Help with, uh, right. square footage as well. So it, those kinds of things, I think, make the, self, the, the operations platform valuable for us. Interesting. Now, in your role, uh, uh, Chris, with, uh, you know, you being the chief investment officer, you are always on the hunt for money sorts, right? I mean, you're always on the hunt for, uh, you know, new sources of capital and things like that. So how are you acquiring this? And I'm, I'm especially curious to know that, um, you know, the retail investors uh, acquisition for them is one thing, but trying to go to, let's say, the larger private equity players or perhaps uh, the other mutual fund or life insurance companies and university endowments and things like that, right? I mean, that that's I mean that's a leg up in terms of going out to uh, and acquiring it. What does that look like on your end? Like, what sort of strategies you're doing? Is that like the conferences or the different meetups, or is that the cruise uh, or the clubs? What, what different activities you're doing to kind of get into that uh, space? So specific to the larger institutional investors, um, I would say that the best success we've had is engaging groups who they're used to seeing deals come from. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, and, and I think you got to categorize that a little bit um, as well, like, you know, family office money is very relationship driven, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, they, they want to have a relationship with the groups that they're uh, raising capital or uh, deploying capital with, you know, institutional shops are just trying to deploy capital um, at scale. And in right. some of the university endowments, we met with uh, Harvard and Yale's university endowments last summer. And that mm -hmm. came from cold calling, literally, you know, go wow. to the website, start to email everybody, reaching out with phone calls um, and see if they'd be willing to sit down with us. Sure. Um, and, and they did, um, you know, but think about like a Harvard, a Harvard endowment, they, they managed $38 billion in their endowment, you know, plus or minus two, two sure. billion. Mm -hmm. And they have a very small team. So their biggest issue is they can't invest in too many opportunities because there's not that much to support it, right? They don't have couple hundred people in their office. Sure, sure. You know, they may have 20. And sure. that's a lot of money to manage with 20 people. So, you know, for us, the, the, the issue, for example, Harvard said no, you know, one of the issues was they like to deploy 1% of their fund with each manager. So on a $38 billion fund, that's $380 million of equity. Sure. 
you know, they looked at us and not necessarily sure we could deploy $380 million of equity. And I looked at us and said, you know, that's, that's quite a stretch at the investment terms that you're looking for. Sure, sure. So, absolutely. You know, there's definitely a, a balance as you start to talk to larger investors. They have to deploy capital at scale to make it worth their while to do the due diligence work up front. You know, so they may say to you, look, we're not going to talk to you unless you can put $50 million to work. Even if I came to them today and said, hey, I, give me 10 million tomorrow, I'll give you 20. They would say, that's not worth it. Like, it, it doesn't even move the needle. So Why? <laughs> you, you, you have to kind of understand the, the perspective that they're coming from as well. Um, and where we've had the most success with the larger institutional investors is really the investment banking world um, mm -hmm. and being able to engage a shop like that to go out to people who say, look, we've done our due diligence on this group we'll bring you access to deals. And they're used, that's, you know, the, the big shops in New York, the Blackstones, KKRs, Apollo, well, these big private equity real estate funds, that's how most of the time they're seeing deals. You know, they're being brought stuff that says, hey, this fits, you know, we've done a deal with you in the past, this fits. And then you're paying, you know, the investment bank a percentage of whatever equity gets deployed from those groups. Sure, sure. And um, uh, boy, I mean, I just appreciate your insights. This, this has been such a great conversation, uh, Chris. I, I absolutely appreciate the amount of knowledge you're sharing here. Uh, one, a uh, couple of quick questions, uh, Chris, before uh, we run out of time here. Uh, that uh, relationship with the bigger players, the institutional players that you said, um, what sort of uh, time horizon need, it needs, uh, like, you know, for the relationship to cultivate? Is that like two months, three months, six months? What, what does that look like? You're saying from the time they meet you to the time they deploy capital? Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. I think it probably depends. Um, you know, it, it, they're going to go through a due diligence process with you. First, understanding, sure. you know, uh, what your pipeline looks like. And again, that you have the scale to deploy enough capital for them to make it worthwhile, right? Like the worst thing that they could do is approve you as a manager. You know, let's say, you know, they, you go through due diligence process, they say, yep, you know, I'll work with you, Sakar, and you deploy 10 million bucks and nothing else. <laughs> and they just wasted, you know, again, it doesn't move the needle for them, right? Right, right. Even if you, even if you crush it with that $10 million, they're going to look at you and say, hey, you know, we needed to do 75 or 100. So, right. <laughs> you know, I think that's part of it is they're going to go through that due diligence process with you. Um, you know, there's one group we've been talking to, man, for a year. Um, and we're almost at the point where we can see a term sheet, you know, where they're going to provide a term sheet to us to say, mm -hmm. here's what we think. Mm -hmm. um, but there, there's some really interesting synergies between the groups and what they want to do and what we want to do, which is mm -hmm. why we continue to you know, foster that relationship. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it depends, you know, on, mm -hmm. on the group. Um, the one thing I would say, you know, for your listeners too is, the track record is a big part of this, right? So absolutely, absolutely. You know, they're, mm -hmm. Again, they're the prettiest girl at school, so <laughs> they can date anybody they want, you know. Right, and right. and um, you gotta you gotta have a, a something that that stands out to them um, for them to uh, to be interested for sure. I, yeah. I know. I mean, uh, it's it's amazing with your sales background. I think uh, uh, patience and uh, knowing that you could be too close, but still too far at times and that can go on for quite some time so boy uh, i appreciate your time uh, chris uh, please uh, tell our listeners um, uh, chris like uh, you know what sort of is your best advice into all of this 
Are we talking about life, Sakar, or is this just a whether uh, it's a life or investments or you know some of the best advice you may have uh, you know heard and that keeps you in discipline every day? Yeah, I mean, I I would say that um, I guess my life advice is you know um, jump, be opportunistic. Um, when you see and feel an opportunity in front of you, don't be afraid to go pursue it. Uh, you know, I, I, I have an 18 year old son who, you know, is in the midst of career, like, you know, life decisions, big boy sure. decisions. Mm -hmm. And what I said is, buddy, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up, you know, like go into every opportunity, do it the best you can and be opportunistic while you're there. Right. And if you find something that you're like, Ooh, that's really neat. Don't be afraid to make that jump. And, and it's scary. Right. And, but you know, there's a reason you think, Ooh, that's really interesting. And, and maybe it flops and it, and it certainly could. Sure. Um, but I think when you look back at your time on the earth, if you're, you're going to be much more satisfied saying, Hey, I tried versus, you know, I, I stayed with what was safe and, you know, regret it. And, and for me, that's my kind of life thing is I just don't want to look back and be like, man, I should try that, you know? And, and, uh, it, it's worked out for us pretty well so far. I mean, not to say I haven't made mistakes, that is 100% not true, um, but I've certainly learned a lot. And, and I think if you're uncomfortable consistently, that, that means you're, you're learning. Um, wonderful, wonderful. Go get her advice. Don't be regretful as your life goes. Uh, I love that aspect. Um, please share with the listeners, uh, Chris, how they can find you and learn more about your company and everything. Sure. Um, I, the investment side of things, if you're interested in the, uh, the platform, um, you can go to reliantinvestments.com and uh, we have a bunch of information on there, current offerings. You know, there's some educational um, commentary. There's some free videos, that kind of stuff um, on the website. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, pretty active. It's Chris Benson with a K. Um, we put a bunch of stuff out there as well. Um, I think that's probably a good start. Awesome. It's been wonderful, Chris. Uh, thank you. I have always been looking forward to this show and oh boy, uh, you delivered some punch and you delivered some great insights. So I appreciate your time today. I will, you know, look forward to, uh, you know, exchanging further notes with you and having you on a, a future podcast as well. So thank you for coming on today. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, Scar. Hope you have a good rest of the day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.